job. Good job. Well, it's great to see you this morning. Thank you for joining us here in-house and online. Today, we're going to continue in our study in the Acts of the Apostles, and we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, which picks up the narrative that we looked at last week, which was, of course, the defense by Stephen against the accusations that were brought against him and that brave defense that ended in his martyr's death. And as we just recall that, we begin this chapter. And Saul was there giving approval of his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed Christ there. So we have the beginning of something amazing. We have the beginning of the mission to the world from Jerusalem. But this, of course, is catalyzed, is, is prompted, is begun out of the fires of persecution. So today I'm going to look at some of these verses right here at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And then I'm going to just ask a couple of questions about what is it that God intends through the difficulties that we face. Last week we looked at this, this structure of narrative that we see right throughout Scripture. We see that every hero in the Bible, whether they be female or male, goes through the same pattern of the story of their lives, both in micro and in macro perspective. They have a call. The call is sometimes resisted, but is always brought to them by God. And in time, they surrender to the call, often out of a sense of weakness. And in the call, they enter into the valley of challenge. They, they don't immediately see the completion. Sometimes the completion occurs after their death. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 11 says, all of the great saints that he's referring to did not see the completion of their call in their lifetime. And so the call takes us into the valley of challenge. And in the valley of challenge, we, we face our enemies we face the antagonist of the hero. We meet the mentor of the hero. In Scripture, the mentor is always the Lord with whom we walk, either in the Old Testament, where it's clearly Jehovah, it's clearly Yahweh, who the great saints of the Old Testament are walking with. Or perhaps it's Jesus who the disciples are following, or the one that he proclaimed would follow him, the Holy Spirit, we walk with him. But one way or another, God intervenes in our life and he comes and mentors us through 
human vessels and directly as he speaks to the hearts of the heroes. And as they come through their valley of challenge, often finding friends and family along the way, they see the mountaintop. Maybe only as a vision, but the vision is enough to satisfy their hearts because their hopes are fulfilled in him. As they wait, their strength is renewed. They rise up on wings like eagles. And when they see the completion, the culmination of their journey, they come to their, to their story's completion. The call followed by the challenge, followed by the completion. And most of the text of the Old and New Testament is taken up by the story, the, the second act in the play. The challenge. How, how do people come to terms with the challenge? How do, how do men and women who follow the Lord, how do they embrace the challenge? How does it transform and change them? How do bad things make them better? How is it possible that God is able to use these difficulties to, to transform them from the inside out? Well, we'll look at that in particular as we go on. But let's look first of all at what it is that we have here. It says, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. This is a tremendously important verse because in this verse is contained both implicitly and explicitly some enormously important gospel milestones. Jesus at the very beginning of the Acts of the Apostles is reported to speak to his disciples just before his ascension into heaven. And he says to them, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. I want you to wait for power to be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. And we looked a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, at the preparation that God was, was making in the hearts of the church for this great venture. They were able to overcome the issues of class and context and culture. They were able to learn the necessary tools of what it meant to have cultural intelligence so that they could cross the, the boundaries and the borders and, and build bridges to people who were unlike them. And now, whether they felt ready or not, persecution broke out and God used the persecution to extend his witness, to extend the light of the gospel beyond Jerusalem to Judea, the, the geographical region immediately around Jerusalem, and then to Samaria, to people who had some traditional connection to the Jews but were culturally quite different. Philip, we're told, one of the seven who had been raised up to, to come to some kind of settlement in the difficulty, the, the cultural difficulties and divisions within the church, Philip went to Samaria, perhaps that wrestling through of how to, 
how to deal with the widows who had different language groups, how they could distribute the food to those different groups of people within the church. Perhaps that equipped him to be the first to venture beyond the realms of the Jewish population into the unknown world of Samaria. We don't know, but we know that the Lord was with him and he did amazing things and we'll look more at that next week. So the scattering, the scattering of God's people began the fulfillment of the great commission of Jesus. The second thing is that the scattering went beyond the initial fulfillment of the Great Commission, beyond Judea and Samaria, to the Gentile world. The same word here, scattered, occurs again in chapter 11. And when you go to chapter 11 and verse 16, you see that those who were scattered because of the persecution began to speak to people who really didn't know anything about the God of the Bible. They began to speak to the Gentiles. I don't know how many people in the congregation are from the historic people of God, but my guess is that the majority of us are Gentiles. And so the scattering began the work that finally culminated in Apex Community Church. Because of the scattering, the Great Commission could begin and could continue even to people beyond the, beyond the perception and knowledge of these first Jewish Christians. Finally, and this is perhaps the most remarkable of things. It's remarkable that the scattering should, could, should prompt the fulfillment of the Great Commission. But, but there's an even greater outcome from the scattering. Because, because of the scattering, something had to be solved. And the thing that had to be solved was this. How could the leaders of the people of God continue to teach and train and develop and discipline the people of God? How could a voice that could be heard every day in the temple that was now no longer open and available to them, how could that voice still be heard to give direction to the infant church? How could the anointing that was upon the teachers and the prophets and the apostles and the evangelists of the first church, how could that voice be projected to give comfort and guidance, to give succor and strength to the church as it extended to the outer regions of the world? What could there be as a possible solution? It's called asynchronous communi communication. Asynchronous communication means that you don't have to be in the same place at the same time to hear the voice. We call it Zoom these days. In those days, they called it the New Testament. 
The New Testament began at this moment. Because at this moment, the leaders of the church had to find a way to continue to give guidance, succor and support. Many, many scholars of the New Testament believe that James's letter is the first document of the New Testament. And that James's letter is written to this specific context before the Gentile world really has been touched. When the Christian faith is a Jewish faith, populated by Jewish people who are followers of Jesus, and who better than the brother of Jesus to give direction to this scattered group of people? And so the first letters of the New Testament were written because the church was moving out beyond the bounds of the voice of those who were given the responsibility of teaching and directing. And so out of this persecution that the devil intended for harm, amazing good began to emerge. The fulfillment of the Great Commission, the birthing of the New Testament documents. Amazing, isn't it? That, that out of such terrible circumstances, such good could be born. Good that continues to redound to us today. What else? Well, let's just continue. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Stephen was dead, but his voice continued. And his voice, annoyingly for Saul, continued in his heart and mind. Stephen died for a particular principle. Stephen died for a particular word that he wanted to bring to his Jewish brothers and sisters. The particular word that he wanted to share with them was that God was now resident in his people and that his people individually and collectively were the temple of God. And that the temple of God was no longer found in stones and in marble. It was no longer found in carvings and embossed beauty. The presence of the living God was now to be found in human hearts. And when they heard it, and when they saw his angelic visage, and when they understood what it was that he was saying, they gnashed their teeth, grinding their teeth at his very words and rushed at him and killed him. And the young man who held the coats of those who got to cast the first stones, said this just a few years later. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred. And you are that temple. Have a guess who said that? 
1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul, renamed from Saul, had the very central revelation of Stephen still alive in his heart. Yes, Stephen was buried, but the truth of Stephen's testimony continued. Isn't that amazing? And then we see, as we continue in this passage, that Saul himself is referenced. And there it speaks of his role in this persecution. Verse 3, but Saul began to destroy the church. May no, may, may no mistake, make no mistake. Saul was intent on absolute destruction. He was being empowered by the words and the authority of his leaders. He was going from place to place, home to home, town to town. And in his headlong pursuit of Christians, he ran into Jesus. Isn't that amazing? In his headlong pursuit of Christians, he ran into Jesus and Jesus knocked him to the ground and blinded him. In the nicest possible way. <laughs> Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We'll look at this more deeply. But again, these words, these seeds planted in the heart of this rebellious Saul became such profound revelation. The words of Stephen become this revelation of, of God's temple being, being, being referenced in the lives of individuals and, and whole communities. But the words of Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? In other words, whenever you hurt one of my followers, I feel it. That very revelation, that very thought when it's fully formed and, and comes to full flower and fruitfulness in the New Testament, is the understanding that the people of God are the body of Christ. And that the head of the body is Jesus and that everything we feel, he feels. And that everything we experience, he experiences. Because we're the body of Christ. We represent him, and in representing him, he receives all that we experience. Imagine. When he's scrambling around in the dust trying to find his way, reaching out for a hand to help him, did he know that that moment would live on to become perhaps the greatest revelation of what the church is in the New Testament? God was doing amazing things, both in the persecuted and in the persecutors. That's because he's sovereign and he can do that. Let's look at this, let's look at this thing about the New Testament because you know all of those, all of those things there that we've just shared. We could drill down into those and spend a good deal of time examining the meaning of all of these things. But, but perhaps today the thing that we would find most helpful 
is to look at James chapter 1 and see it in the context, perhaps, of this first persecution. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to James chapter 1. And perhaps for the first time, read it in the context in which perhaps it was first written. So this is James, the brother of Jesus, who is the last person, remember, that Jesus appears to after his resurrection. We've talked about that rather uncomfortable meeting. Because James was not a follower of Jesus until after the resurrection. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes, notice the word, scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. Imagine receiving this letter from the brother of Jesus when you're in hiding in a relative's home somewhere in one of the towns of Judea. The letter has been copied and circulated amongst the people of God. You're in fear for your life. You're wondering what the future holds Will your fate be that of Stephen and Jesus? It's hard for you to get information about what's happening to the apostles and the leaders of the faith, so you don't really know what's going on. And, and then the brother of Jesus sends a letter to you. And he says, in your accounting of your life, have two columns. One is sadness, and the other is joy. Have two columns. And when you consider the trials that you're going through now, place it in the joy column. When you're making an account of what it is that's happening in your life right now, place it in the joy column. Imagine at the beginning of COVID-19, we're all in lockdown. We're just looking over the parapet of a worldwide pandemic. And we're wondering what it is that's going to happen next. And the brother of Jesus sends you a letter. And says there are two columns that you can account for your life. One says sadness, and one says joy. And even though this is desperately sad, I want you to place it in the joy column. Mm. Why joy? Why would I account it as joy? That word consider, that's, that's really what it means. It means to account. 
So here we are, we're in the midst of perhaps the, the greatest struggle, the greatest difficulty, the, the, greatest, the greatest experience of privation and isolation that any of us will ever have to go again, please God. And James is writing us a letter inspired by the Holy Spirit and he says, put it in the joy column. And place it there because this experience is intended by God for your good. Because all things work together for good for those who love God. All things. All things work together. It's not that God initiates or creates the bad things. It's not that, that God has sent something to, to smite and to disturb us. He, he, he may do, and he's perfectly in his rights to do that. He's the God of the universe. But whatever the cause, whatever the catalyst, whatever, whatever it is that, that prompted the circumstances that you're in, whether it be your own folly, or the sovereignty of God. God can work together within these circumstances for our good. And so therefore, we consider it, we account it, we put it in the joy column. Okay, some of you are sitting there thinking, okay, I knew Christians were crazy, but now I'm sure of it. So what is it, what is it that, um, that James is trying to say to us? I've got a little video. I'm going to just run it for you. And um, maybe this will give you an idea of what it is that God has in mind. That looks pretty difficult, doesn't it? Is he ever going to get up? I don't think he's going to get up. I think he's going to fall down again. No, he's not going to get up. He's, he's still not free of that water. He's still walking on water. He's still walking. He, so, it, oh, uh, oh, e, Now, we're going to have that guy and others in the background for a minute or so. And you can listen to me whilst you look at them. I just want to ask you just this, this question. How did they ever learn to do that? How, how does a bird learn to do that when they weigh as much as that bird How do they go from fear to flight? How do they ever do that? There's a Greek word for it. It's 
Hoopamonas. English word, perseverance. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. The testing of your faith develops perseverance. Now listen, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. What do you need for a mature faith? Well, more teaching, Mike. No. What do you need for a mature, complete understanding as a Christian? Maybe some training at church. No. What do you need for a mature faith? Maybe just one more blast of the Holy Spirit. No. Maybe one more release of one more gift. No. Maybe I could go to that conference or hear that anointed preacher or go to that, that, that guy that really is gifted in teaching about healing. Maybe, maybe, maybe. What do you need for a mature faith? What do you need for a mature faith? Have a go, say it back to me. What do you need for a mature faith? Up on the shelf, what do we need? What do we need for a mature faith? Let's say it all aloud, nice and loud. What do we need for a mature faith? Perseverance. Perseverance. Wow, that's a bit different. Because we've been raised in a culture where preference is way more important than perseverance. Because perseverance means that you have to drill down into the priorities and set aside the preferences. You have to decide what it is that you have to cling to rather than would just like to have. Perseverance requires us to go from want to need. Perseverance means that we strip away all of the fripperies and the vanities and we find the essentials as opposed to the non-essentials. Some of you young people have been raised into a world that's been created by my generation and older. Uh, the world uh, is defined by lots of different things, but probably the single most important cultural factor of the world in which we live is called consumption. The consumer society created and developed since the close of the Second World War that was initiated and brought to embryo 
in the 50s, began to grow to maturity in the 60s and 70s and found its full flower in this new millennium is a world in which your choice and preference are front and center and perseverance is not really taught anywhere. What kind of circumstances would God use in a world where rampant consumerism and preference over priority has gained the upper hand? What kind of circumstance would God use? A circumstance of collective struggle and difficulty. A circumstance that feels like it's impossible. A circumstance where you have to focus on what it is that's important now. Because so many of the things that we found to be the fabric of our life are no longer available to us. Count it all joy. Did you think that COVID-19 would produce maturity in your life? Well, if it hasn't, it still can because it's God's plan. If it hasn't, it still can because it's God's plan. And it's the plan for your children, parents, and grandparents. And it's the plan for your house churches, dear Christian brothers and sisters, and for your households, and for your businesses, and for your relationships, and for everything that your life touches. Your God wants your life mature, complete, not lacking anything. And he's going to produce it through difficulty as we learn to persevere. Isn't that amazing? And so these dear Christians in Jerusalem who for no fault of their own had terrible people some of whom became great people, but had terrible people pursue them to prison and death. These people that could not avoid their circumstances learned to receive in the midst of inescapable circumstances the things that God wanted to produce in their life despite the circumstance. Now listen carefully to what I say here because this is tremendously important. I'm not suggesting to you today that escapable circumstances of abuse or injustice are the things that God wants you to stay in. I'm not saying that. Escapable circumstances, escapable circumstances of abuse and injustice need to be escaped from immediately. 
immediately. But inescapable circumstances, circumstances that you cannot influence or control, like a pandemic, for instance, circumstances that you cannot control, inescapable circumstances, are circumstances in which God wants to train you to embrace one of the great spiritual disciplines of your life, and it's called perseverance. And if you will learn it, you'll learn to embrace it on so many occasions, and as you do, your life will be utterly transformed. No longer will it be this effete, weak Christian blown around by every wind of doctrine, every crazy conspiracy on the internet. No longer will it be that you will be subject to the whims of your emotions and to the pressure of your circumstance. Now, firmly rooted, grown in faith, Complete in maturity, you'll know how to stand. And what will it look like for those of us who perhaps feel that today Mike's preaching to the choir, I kind of, I've got this, I've done this a lot in my life. Well, the great thing about perseverance is it doesn't stop. Let me finish with this final story. A young man at the end of the First World War had need of recovery and rehabilitation. A young French soldier had been wounded in the trenches of Flanders and he decided that he would take a hiking holiday, a hiking vacation in the foothills of the Alps, in the Provence region of France. And there, in this dry and at times beautifully desolate place, his soul and his body began to recover. One day, as he's walking through the sparse grassland of Provence, he sees a figure in the distance. And because there's no one with him and there's no one else to speak to, he decides that he'll go over. And there is a shepherd, an old man, surrounded by his sheep. And he's doing something kind of unusual. He, he can't quite work out what it is that he's doing. He seems to be jamming his shepherd's staff into the ground for some reason. And as he gets closer, he notices that the old man is jamming his staff into the ground and then dropping a seed into the hole. He greets him. Bonjour, is my guess. And he asks the old man, what are you doing? The old man looks around the landscape and says, 
Once upon a time, this was a magnificent forest. And the people of Provence cut down the trees and never replaced them. So I've decided to replant the forest. The young man looks at the old man thinking, I think it's going to take longer than your lifetime. But passes the time of day and walks off with a somewhat quizzical attitude towards what it is that the old man has shared with him and forgets the story until some 25 or so years later after the Second World War he decides that he will retrace his steps as a young man and he'll go for a hiking holiday, a hiking vacation to the foothills of the Alps, to the Provence region. And he'll retrace his steps. And when he gets there, he finds wooded glades and trees everywhere. Springs have now produced streams. And there are woodland flowers and animals of all kinds of descriptions that surely never populated this place before and they're everywhere. And he remembers the old man, surely now long dead, and smiles and thinks, what perseverance has produced? And he walks through the forest and comes to its edge, looks out across the grassland. And there's a figure. Bent over. holding his staff, surrounded by his sheep. Eliezer Bouffier is now 87 years old. And he's still planting the forest. Dear Christian friends, Keep going. Keep going. Don't give up. Keep going. And if you've not started, start going now. Start moving in the direction of perseverance. Not in human flesh, striving in your own strength but waiting on him who will renew your strength and will cause you to rise up on wings like eagles. Cause you to run and not be weary and continue to the end of the day.
Is there an amen in the room? Let's pray. Lord, we recognize the challenge of the valley. And we recognize, Lord, that the world has been through such a deep and dark valley. And we thank you, Lord, that you've met us in that valley. And your word to us is keep going. Because the most precious gift that you have given us, our faith, will mature if we persevere. And Lord, may it be that we look back on our lives and say, the Lord did a marvelous thing. The Lord did a wonderful thing and he gave me the strength to persevere. When the circumstances were inescapable, he gave me the grace to continue. And my faith is mature because of it. Lord, may it be so for us. Because we prayed in the strong name of Jesus. And all God's people say...